liberalism from its inception is never just a kind of pure, uh, kind of abstract account of political rights. The account of civil society in Locke is really interesting because I can't, I hate to be, keep coming back to Hobbes, but hopefully it's a helpful contrast, right? In Hobbes, like civil society just is political society. That's the same, like, those are the same things for him. Like civil society is a polis. It's a civitas, right? It's a set of, it's a set of laws ordained by a sovereign and governed under sovereign rule. That's what civil, but so when you get to civil society in Locke and it's like permutations through like political economy, like Adam Smith and, and then Hegel and Marx, it becomes like something more like economic society, right? Civil society is the sphere of individuals, you know, exchange, like working and exchanging on the market and engaging with one another at a distance from the state. That's not quite, you know, reducible to like state or political activity. So I think it's really interesting that, that the way that like at the inception of philosophical liberalism, as Locke articulates it, he's actually, it's not really a political like theory so much as an account of the relationship between politics and economics. Like the purpose of politics for Locke is to secure that domain of exchange and property, right? Like that's what, that's, that's the end of politics for the, that's the goal. That's the, the goal of politics is actually an economic goal. It isn't a political goal at all, which is extremely different than like Machiavelli or Hobbes, or, for which they're actually dealing with questions of politics and kind of see an imminent logic and set of problems within the political. I don't know. I just thought, yeah, those, that, that, that civil society as political society, and you can see here its transition into what Hegel and the Germans call like burgerlich Gesellschaft, bourgeois society. Bourgeois society, literally. Literally in the chapter of political and civil society, I turned here. One, because this is the place where I got my joke about Lockean liberalism, Afro-pessimism, where it's like, slaves are not a part of civil society. But he goes, he says, he says quite literally, quote, the chief end of civil society is the preservation of property. And I, I don't know, like sometimes if you just like hear about liberalism through the grapevine, you know it has some relationship to property, but it seems like your know, property is more about you know securing individual rights. It doesn't seem as if it's presented as your know, liberalism, at least the Lockean liberalism, is actually the economic is the end of itself. Rather than you know, yes. um, what we might call a type of political argument that you know Hobbes is making, and you know I, I just think when you start digging into the actual historical context, especially because you know, Locke is writing this, and I won't belabor this point, but he's writing this while slavery still exists. I get it; it's controversial. What was Locke's relationship to the transatlantic slave trade? He probably fucked up with the constitutions of the Carolina. He's like, well. The slaves are your property. You have absolute dominion over them. You can do whatever you want. Maybe I hear like he changed his mind. It's like, well, that was a fucked up position. Don't know why I did that. But I guess you can only realize that's a fucked up position if you know, you have a political conception that would interrupt this notions of property claims that have been expanded to the human body. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he thinks that this should have an economic end, sometimes it seems to me that gets obscured. And, you know, this economic end is, you know, sometimes it's pushed outside of the realm political contestation. And what relationship does that economic end have for the uh, uh, political relationships we create with one another? Completely. I mean, yeah. I think that this is, like, extremely important in general. Because when I think about the ways that people try to make liberalism inclusive, and I actually don't know if the what is liberalism introduction I gave is exactly any of all y'all's motivation for thinking about liberalism. It's one of mine. Like how inclusive can can it serve this end of social inclusion that uh, it seems uh, from the perspective of 
ra many radicals to even be more apt than socialism or Marxism at, at doing. You know, liberalism is like uniquely capable of absorbing all of our uh, desires for recognition and everything else. If it's true that the whole point of it is like def a defense of a property regime, a lot of that argument just seems to depend on abstracting away from the defense of the property regime. Like you have to yes. be able to not only make liberalism inclusive, but egalitarian. And I think this is crazy. I think it's not true. I'll just put this out there. Like I've always had this thought since, I don't know, I was like a it, like a long time ago when I took my first like DEI workshop and I just realized class does not fit into this framework, period. It's a total category error to talk about class as being relevant to this context. Um, the only thing you could do is be sensitive to people who are once poor and are not necessarily anymore or don't want to be, you know, mm -hmm. and then and then they won't oh. be because they get middle class <laughs> jobs and then it's like. Okay, but then they're not working class anymore because they have work. Like, there's a constitutive exclusion here, and there's mm. nothing you can do about it. And all the other things, the extent to which they are excluded, are because of the extent to which they have a class basis. So, what are we yeah, talking oh. about? And so, liberalism like defends this, but we keep saying it doesn't. We keep saying it can get more and more expansive and more egalitarian. And before anyone just thinks I'm only harping on identity shit, like. Socialists do it too. Like liberalism can justify non-capitalist regimes and everything, you know, this goes on. So it's, yeah. I just, and I just think that like the actual way in which we live, like liberalism does in fact justify things in the world is not what people think liberalism can be. And I, and I just think these might be irreconcilable. I really like that. And I think an easy way to, re to remember it is just to remember that political liberalism I don't think, and I would argue, it cannot be separated from economic liberalism. Like the economic liberal, I, you hear a lot of conversations, and I think over the last few months, like on Twitter and stuff, there was arguments about liberalism, how much could it accommodate, how much could it not, and it's always discussions about the rights elements of, of liberalism, specifically the political rights element of it. And I just don't think, I think that conversation is a lot more difficult, but a lot more honest if we understand the imminence, as Locke understood it, as every liberal, every classical liberal understood it, the political argument is imminent right? and imminently connected to an economic argument and to a vision of a certain economic regime, which is constitutively oppressive, right? Which is constitutively exploitative. And so th I guess that, yeah, that's all, that was, I think, is one way to just, I don't know, keep in front of mind that connection between political and economic liberalism. I Gil, I know you're about to jump in, but I, I got to say this, like listening to you, Owen, about your know, political liberalism, economic liberalism, I'm just imagining a socialist being like, I'm a socialist in the streets and the liberal in the sheets, like, <laughs> yeah. or like the reverse or something. Like, yeah. Nah, bro, you don't get yeah. to be a socialist in the sheets and the liberal in the streets. You're bringing right. the liberalism in the bedroom. Yeah, it's coming all the way down. It's coming all the way down. Yeah, I mean, like, so <laughs> it does have this character, right? We've got a posited with Locke now, a kind of homo economicus in the state of nature, whose fundamental kind of orienting passions is like, well, he's like, yeah, of course, like everyone would take as much as they possibly could, as, as, as Lillian said, as soon as they're given the opportunity to do so. And hey, good news, they were given the opportunity to do so because money showed up one day. So like when he's talking about like the state of nature, right, like we all, you know, we all know this, right, the state of nature is a projection of some kind. And like the reason why you'd exit the state of nature to enter the civil state and form political society is because we've already got class division. We've literally already got the accumulation of, of, 
I mean, capital in the hands of like a landowning few and workers and stuff like this, which is why, of course, like, you know, when you ask after the ends of government, like, what is the purpose of governance, right? What is the purpose of having a government? And he just like says it over and over again. He's like, it's the preservation of property. That's it. And so when you like think then about like, okay, what a government's supposed to do, and then whenever he starts talking about like specific laws or functions of government, he's like figuring out how to punish people when they break property rules, actually punishing people when they break those rules. And then that's it. That's the end of the discussion. My man's not talking about infrastructure. He's not talking about education. He's not talking about anything other than mm -hmm. just the punishing of those who violate the regime of private property, right? At which point it's like, you know, we like, you know, to, to connect this dot to the conversation that you all were just having, you know, liberalism conceived of as this set of rights, like what rights? The only right I see here is the right to property. I'm not hearing Locke talk about the right to, I don't know, what are the other ones that we like to talk about? Freedom of speech, freedom of expression or of association. Uh, none of that. None of that. And it's even funny, the one time he does talk about education, uh, it's funny how, how much time he spends talking about parenting. But Gil, you explained to me, but that's, you know, him you know, chatting up or disputing this guy, Robert Filmer or something like that. But yeah, yeah, to yeah. me, who just read the second trace, I'm like, why are we talking about parenting so much? But the one thing about education, like you, you stop having dominion of your child once they've learned the natural law. And it yeah. turns out the natural law is, you know, these relations of respect for property and all of that. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you still got to respect your parents, but like, that's when your job done. Now yeah, they, you learn the business. Yeah, 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 yeah which yeah. you can definitely hand down to your son, probably for like, not your daughter, but to your son, you know, and they can take it over. No king has a right to step in and stop that, your know, right of succession. Right. And that usually takes about 21 years. He's like one in 20 years, the kids probably learned the natural law and then how to respect property. And then, you know, you no longer have paternal dominion over them, but they should still honor you. Yeah. Man. yeah. Oh, man. yeah. I was like, respect your betters, but you know, you can't enforce it. Yeah. I'm just thinking about this inclusion thing that you're talking about, Lillian, if I could just go back for one second. I mean, because there is just this, it is amazing that there is this hard limit on like how far that, because this is part of the narrative, I think, that justifies, this is part of the legitimation structure of liberalism is that, yes, okay, like it might be the case that when Locke was writing this stuff that certain, a lot of people were excluded um, from what he was talking about. But if you just keep the exact same thing in place and you bring more and more, you expand it out to include more people, there's nothing inherently contradictory about that. Well, like what if you like tried to become more inclusive on the economic front? You say like, Okay, you know, we want to also include everybody in property ownership. You know, you want to expand, include, and like, you know, you, you take a few steps in that direction. All of a sudden, you're no longer in liberalism, right? Like, you can't do the inclusion thing on the on the thing that is the core tenet of what makes personhood in, in liberalism. You can't continue including more and more people and have it still be liberalism. Hey, thanks so much for listening. This was just a small sample of the full episode. To listen to it and to other premium content we're putting out, including all of our series-specific episodes, please subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophy. See you next time.